over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. James this morning on Labor and Love. Morning, everybody. Hope you had a good week and good work. 
but I please want you to have some mercy, have some mercy on me. Get ready. 
morning You see her waiting on the street for her ride In an hour she'll be working That was Cher with her uh, poem to working women, working girl. For that, of course, we had what was for a while the theme song of this show, 
Subterranean Homesick Blues by Bob Dylan. Before that, Etta James with her rendition of the T-Bone Walker classic. The Proletarian Blues. Stormy Monday Blues. Talking about the working man's week. Well, this is The Bee. Welcome to Mutiny Radio's Labor and Love Saturday Morning Labor Magazine. I'm the bee, and we've got today, what have we got today? A 98-year-old woman arrested in Argentina. How long would it take you to afford a place to live in cities all across the United States? Anarchist hero, Benaventura Duruti died on the 19th of July, so we're going to look at him and look at that anniversary. got an interview today with uh, Malin Ramirez, a young woman of of my, uh, who I know, a teacher who found teaching here stateside, so directionless, I suppose. She wasn't getting anywhere. She was making a limited amount of money and lived in a place where it was expensive to live, which is uh, a lot of teachers in the Bay Area are in the same position. Today's the anniversary of Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. Day of Trinity. And this is the Labor and Love Show, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is the Labor and Love Show, where we bring you labor history, labor commentary, labor opinion, interviews with working people, and music of social significance.
Choppers coming up over reach. Hot soup on a campfire in the breach. Shelter line stretching around the corner. Welcome to the new world order. Family sleeping in their car in the southwest. No home, no job, no peace, no Highway is alive tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Searching for the ghost of time Joe He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a buddy and takes a drink Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In a cardboard box. 
Fox need the underpass Got a one-way ticket to the promised land mix there <clears throat> mix there of labor based songs first of all yo soy chicano we're still celebrating the anniversary of <clears throat> the signings of contracts by the lords of california the growers who never signed a contract like that before um end of july 1966, 1970. Yo soy Chicano. I am a Chicano. I'm a person of Mexican descent who happens to live in the United States. And I say happens to because California was part of Mexico. And the people stayed and the border was drawn. All of a sudden, they became foreigners in their own country. Yo soy Chicano. Then we had uh, Roy Orbison. Mm -hmm. 
is working for the man. I should probably kill him, but it wouldn't just wouldn't be right. And then uh, the ghost of Tom Joad. Tom Joad, of course, the wandering, the migrant farm worker figure. In this case, a white farm worker. John, from John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. The ghost of Tom Joad haunts the countryside looking for a place to stay, looking for a good place to work, looking for some dignity. I want to celebrate the life of uh, James Baldwin and play a little about education. We're going to be talking about education pretty generally in this show because uh, I'm a teacher. I was a teacher. Still affiliated with my local teachers. Here's what Baldwin has to say on education, and after that we'll talk a little about Baldwin and Weebles. James Baldwin on education. Would like, you like to, Mr. Baldwin, to comment on public uh, education in, in America, especially with respect to blacks? Especially with respect to blacks. And, uh, and especially why on this university the, the black enrollment very low. I, I, I don't know if he can really respond to that or not, but just go ahead. I don't I'll do my best. I, 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 I'll begin with the public school situation, which I know more about. And that's a very, it's a very difficult question to answer too. It's a difficult to answer because first of all, it's, um, it's, um, you can't begin to answer without feeling terribly futile. And um, look, the truth is, it's very hard to talk about education in this country without talking about the whole society in which it, in which it mainly fails to occur. Um, you can't, um, you can hardly talk about schools, you know, without talking about cities. And the cities are in the hands of financiers. The cities are in the hands of pirates, thugs. And our children, therefore, are therefore um, are victims of, of this, are victims of um, the principles according to which the country is run. The country is not run according to the, you know, either the will of its citizens, I hope, or the good of its citizens, I know that, but for profit, for money, to make money. And education is a billion-dollar industry. And the least important part of that industry is the child. I think this is a criminal, but this is the way it works. Now, the public education uh, in the city in which I grew up, you know, is, um, is enough to break the heart, you know, enough to, enough to make you want to kill. But, and when we are tried, and we're trying again, and we've tried over and over and over again, to educate our children ourselves to, um, to be responsible for the teaching, the, the curriculum, for the books, uh, we did that for three years in New York some years ago, and the experiment succeeded for three years. And because it succeeded, it was crashed, it was smashed by the Board of Education, the Teachers Union, and Albany. You know, so that is what you're up against. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what one's, one's up against. As for enrollment at this college, um, let's face it, um, 
black people in this country have a terrible time just getting through 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely true, you know. And education, in a, it's hard to talk about education in a country in which illiteracy is, 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 um, illiteracy is adored. It's hard, to talk, it's hard to talk about education in a country where people take seriously some, such a creature as John, as John Wayne and Ronald Reagan. You know, <laughs> it is. You know, I'm not, I really am not trying to be funny. It's true, you know. And for a black person to get an education in this country, he's, he's got to have a lot of guts, first of all. And to endure, I'm sorry, you know, to be, I don't mean to be rude, but this institution is like many other institutions, and which, which means it's a racist institution. You know, Amen. That there's no way around that. All the American institutions are racist. And to get an education under those circumstances is a tremendous act of the will. And also you risk schizophrenia. <laughs> I'm, not saying this, I'm not saying this because I think black people should not be educated, but I am saying that black people very largely educate themselves. What, one do, what, what you have to do is pick up the tools and with your own intention. You know, that's the trick. That was James Baldwin talking about education. Uh, one of his essays. <clears throat> days, this is one of them. In a book called. Um, when you wonder. The price of the ticket, I believe. Here's another cut from James Baldwin. Price of the tickets. Uh, teaser for. Uh, Document. What your role is in this country and what your future is in it. From my point of view, no label, no slogan, and no party, and no um, skin color, and indeed no religion, is more important than the human being. Now, when you were starting out as a writer, you were black, impoverished, homosexual. You must have said to yourself, gee, how disadvantaged can I get? Well, no, I thought I hit the jackpot. Oh, great. <laughs> it was so outrageous, you could not go any further, you know. It had to be, so you had to find a way to use it. came from New Orleans, my mother came from Maryland, and if they had waited, you know, two more seconds, I might have been born in the South. The first house I remember was on Park Avenue, which is not the American Park Avenue, or maybe it is the American Park Uptown Avenue. Uptown Park Avenue. Uptown Park Avenue, where the railroad tracks are. We used to play on the roof, and um, I can't call it an alley, but uh, near the river, it was kind of dump, garbage dump. That was the first, those were the first things I remember. I remember my father had trouble keeping us alive. There were nine of us. 
and um, I was the oldest, so I took care of the kids and um, dealt with daddy. Might sound much better now. Part of his problem was he couldn't feed his kids. But I was a kid and I didn't know that. And um, he was very religious, very rigid. In fact, in a word, he wanted power. He wanted Negroes to do, in effect, what he imagined white people did. That is to have, to own the houses, to own U.S. Steel. And this is what, uh, in effect, killed him. Because there was something in him which could not bend. He could only be broken. You think your pain and your heartbreak. days, this is one of them, when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. From my point of view, no label, no slogan, no party, and no um, skin color, and indeed no religion, is more important than the human being. Now, when you were starting out as a writer, you were black, impoverished. Okay, James Baldwin, a couple of interviews there, uh, both when he was very young and uh, when he was older. Baldwin was a writer, of course, uh, a gay writer, um, very much aware of his sexuality, but is very frank. He wrote beautifully. He wrote beautifully about his life and about the life of his people. And he spoke with great eloquence in various uh, interviews. I suppose for James Baldwin, the most compelling thing that he said was about white people. And speaking directly to white people, he said... Your sin is your innocence. And and it's so. I mean, right in front of us, you know, for hundreds of years, we allowed Americans to be terrorized, to be hung and tortured and murdered and, and dehumanized over and over and over, and we let it happen. We were uh, watching baseball games, or we were uh, pursuing our destiny, or we were, whatever we were doing, whatever we as white people were doing, we were going around about our business while this terrible uh, holocaust was going on right inside our nation. So when Baldwin says, your crime is your innocence, that's what he means. Crime is not knowing about it when it's going on all around you. And as Baldwin once said, the the public schools, 
especially the history and social studies courses, amount to a criminal conspiracy against black kids, Chicano kids, white working class kids. Anyway, Baldwin was born in 1924 in New York City. And um, his mother left his biological father because of drug abuse and moved to Harlem. She married a preacher. And um, his father was harsh to him, teased and abused by two New York police officers. An, ins an instance of racist harassment by the NYPD that he would experience again as a teenager and document in his essays. Baldwin was honest enough to write about this stuff, to appeal to us. He still had enough faith in humanity, in our humanity, that he would appeal to us. His first book was a classic. One of those books that people say uh, everyone should read, Notes of a Native Son. Uh, there was a novel before that, Go Tell It on the Mountain. But Notes of a Native Son is a book of short essays about his experience as an African-American and growing up in Harlem and being kind of reduced to the choice between either being an entertainer or a pimp, an athlete. The, chan the, the choices were very few. Um, there's not another writer, said Time Magazine, who expresses with such poignancy and abrasiveness the dark realities of the racial ferment in the North and South. Abrasive. Uh, I, don't, I can't say as I ever found Baldwin's writing abrasive. Uh, if anything, it was too eloquent. And I wound up in its own eloquence instead of the thing at hand. But abrasiveness, I guess the truth, the abrasiveness of, of insisting on the truth. He made a prominent appearance at the Civil Rights March on August 28, 1963. The only known gay men in the movement were James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin. Rustin and King were very close as Rustin received credit for the success of the March on Washington. Many were bothered by Rustin's sexual orientation. King himself spoke on the topic of sexual orientation in a school editorial column during his college years and in reply to a letter during the 1950s where he treated as a, it as a mental illness which an individual could overcome, the common view of the time. The pressure later resulted in King distancing himself from both men. At the time, Baldwin was neither in the closet nor open to the public about his sexual orientation. 
Later on, Baldwin was conspicuously uninvited to speak at the end of the March on Washington. After a bomb exploded in a Birmingham church not long after the March on Washington, Baldwin called for a nationwide campaign of civil disobedience. He watched mothers with babies and elderly men and women standing in long lines for hours as armed deputies and troopers stood by or intervened to smash a reporter's camera or use cattle prods on the SNCC workers. Anyway, so towards the end of his life, throughout his life, Baldwin had this identity. He was both black and gay, and he struggled to define himself as a gay black man. That was his struggle. He died in 1987. If you don't know much about him, read Notes of a Native Son. It's a voice that came out of nowhere in the 60s. This is the B, and we're talking labor. Um, just got finished talking about James Baldwin. I suppose what we might do here is uh, play some music. This is Labor and Love, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. We're at 2781 21st Street. And uh, let's see what we got lined up for you. We're still in a drought, y'all. Here's Brother Charlie Morgan. In New Zealand I read a magazine Something nasty crossed my eye The earth that fed me in California Was turning cracked and dry New Zealand ferns are always green It rains more there than it should I looked to the cloud that was raining on me And said, go where you can do some good Clouds stop crying and wasting time And fly across the sky Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. Met a guy from San Francisco in a railway ticket line. He said the Grateful Dead was alive and well, but the weather wasn't so fine. Nobody had a garden, nothing lived but weeds. The earth looked like some kind of feverish person who'd caught a strange disease. He said the reservoirs are empty, cattle dying too. Every tongue is reaching out to sip the morning dew. And they say the fields and valleys are turning green to brown. That the farmers walk a dry and dusty mile in every farm in town. 
Cloud, stop crying and wasting time and fly across the sky. And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. I stared up to the diamond stars one cashmere night. Black velvet sky and a raging river was no other sound or sight. The Big Dipper hung up above the river and I felt that it was a shame. All this water here in California dry, I said to the Dipper by name. Reached out and kissed that raging river and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. People and the animals like to gather where water flows. A beer, some tea, or a water hole, it's there where something grows. And remember the music water makes, the rainy pool and the circle dance. The thunder of the ocean and the waterfall, the laughing creek that feeds the plants. Now the fields are green again, beauty has returned. Tragedies continue to show what we still got to learn. Can't waste away the ocean, water, air, or land. If we upset this sacred ground, we won't have any place to stand. So reach down and kiss the raging river and fly across the sky. And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. East, they say he's leaving home every day, beating the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of that old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Now the police at the port of entry say, you're number 14,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the do-re-mi. You ain't got the do-re-mi Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee California is a garden of Eden A paradise to live in or see But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot If you ain't got the do-re-mi
buy you a home or farm that can't deal nobody harm or take your vacation by the mountains or sea. Don't swap your old cow for a car. You better stay right where you are. You better take this little tip from me. Cause I look through the want ads every day. But the headlines on the papers always say If you ain't got the do-re-mi, boys You ain't got the do-re-mi Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee California is a garden of Eden A paradise to live in or see but believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the do-re-mi. March can be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water turn a mill, singly none. Irish Catholic mother, she was always writing home to Dublin. And she had a large hand, so the address took up most of the envelope. Well, she sent me off to the post office, I was about seven, and I always had to buy penny stamps. So I had to stick stamps all over the front of the envelope, turn it over, stick them all over the back to make up the postage. One day I went home, I said, Mama, why can't I buy shilling stamps? And she said, never because the shilling stamp has a picture of the King of England on it and no son of mine is going to lick the other side. <laughs> started pushing us back to the intersection of Mission and Stewart Streets just off the waterfront when the police car arrived and shots were fired two men lay dead scrap iron crude oil bound for Japan we refused to load it didn't like the way they were bombing those cities in China and we figured it just might come back at us one day same way as we refused to load some German ships because of Hitler and some Italian ships when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. An injury to one is an injury to all.
And I'll tell you something else. Interfere in the foreign policy of our country? Sure as hell. That's our job. That's our right. That's our privilege. That's our duty. Foreign policy is too damned important to be left to the striped pants set in Washington, D.C. I said then that if all the jobs on the dock were to disappear, if they were to dwindle away and all that was left was just two jobs, just two, and I had my way, I'd make damn sure that one of them went to a black worker. And And here's the thing. See, I have every right to be prejudiced because I was brought up in a racist country. I was taught that white people are superior. But I learned better, see? My dear judge, if Harry Bridges is deported, he is more than likely to organise the whole British Empire against us. <laughs> he is a dangerous man and should be kept where we can watch him. Our very good friends of the British domain have more than their fair share of troubles already. Patriotically yours, signed, I see clearly. <laughs> anyway, Carol King, she could write a letter herself. Listen to this. All I have to say is that you are a bastard. <laughs> and the next time you behave like this, I will murder you in cold blood. Well, for that, they threw me back in jail, which I did not like, not one bit. Although, while I was there, I did read 12 books, I put on 15 pounds, and I organised the guards into the Teamsters. <laughs>
And when they got here, they were turned away. The L.A. Police Department, for example, sent officers to the border to stop that immigration. Okay, then we had uh, from Wharf Rats to Lords of the Docks with a new introduction. That's put on by the ILWU, and it's a one-person show. Just a little taster there about Harry Bridges and his uh, early life. I want to read this story from Valley Voice. It's probably apocryphal, but uh, it certainly reflects the point of view of a lot of working people. Valley Report. Woman arrested for defecating on boss's desk after winning the lottery. It's an article by Dave Weasel. A 41-year-old woman had the winning lottery ticket worth over $3 million on Friday night, but showed up to work anyway on Monday to deliver one last package. Now, what would you do? if you had won the lottery and you go back to your job. The courier company had no idea of her winnings. I knew something was wrong because I came back from lunch and the door to my office was closed, said the manager. I slowly opened the door to discover her with her pants around her ankles hunched over my desk. I was frozen in shock and fear. It was worth it, the woman said on arrest. On Friday, when I realized I hit the lotto, I knew this would be the first thing I'd do. Defecate on my boss's desk. I've been putting up with that guy's shit for years. It's time he put up with some of mine. As I say, the Valley Voice is uh, <clears throat> maybe a jokester sheet. But uh, if it isn't true, what a great story. <laughs> How many people feel that way about their bosses but have no way to express those feelings? Okay, this is Labor and Love. It's about 11 o'clock. We've worked through an hour here taking the morning shift with you. We've still got a lot left go to go on, but uh, take a little break and listen to you too. The Troubles.
that was U2 with their song, The Troubles. And uh, we'll play some more U2 uh, next week. U2 is an Irish band, famous Irish band. And uh, they've just come out or are coming out with a new album, which everyone is hanging around waiting for. So uh, U2 has always been a very uh, politically involved band as well. I want to pay tribute again to Brother John Fromer, and and, uh, I just found an album of his. I want to play some cuts off of. Fromer died about three years ago. And he was a driving force in the Bay Area progressive folk music, new music, Nueva Cancion community. He worked in, um, worked with several organizations, Freedom Song Network, the Western Workers Labor Heritage Festival, Encuentro del Canto Popular, and the annual mass demonstration of over 20,000 protesters outside the infamous military training project School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. I used to see John Frommer a lot when my union, 510, uh, we worked on a, a play about how 510 got its jurisdiction and presented it to the City College audience, City College of San Francisco. Fromer Fromer played at the presentation when we did it at uh, the International Longshoremen's Hall. Anyway, I want to play some John Fromer. Just bear with me. Oh, 
Three songs there by uh, Brother John Fromer, a uh, fixture on the local uh, and national progressive uh, labor song, songs of resistance for many years. The first one was, <clears throat> excuse me, my feet are getting tired. A tribute to Rosa Parks and the uh, bus boycott and all the marches from her himself worked in the South uh, in 1965, I believe. And um, just lent his support to all kinds of movements. He would show up at a moment's notice, often sing for free if the audience and the situation were right. This is Labor and Love. I'm the bee. And let's talk a little bit about the bread and butter issues here. Here's how many hours you need to work to pay rent in every state. I'm on the U.S. Uncut website, U.S. Uncut. This is what it's all really about. There isn't any state in the country where a minimum wage worker can afford rent for a one-bedroom apartment working 40 hours a week. There isn't any state in the country where a worker who works 40 hours a week, a minimum wage worker, can afford a one-bedroom home. The NLIHC, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, found that just to afford a basic apartment, a minimum wage worker would have to put anywhere from 44 hours in Puerto Rico to 124 hours in Hawaii to pay rent for the most basic housing arrangements. To put that in perspective, there are 168 hours a week, meaning that a minimum wage worker working seven days a week in Hawaii would have roughly six hours each day for eating, sleeping, caring for family and other leisure activities essentially having no time for anything other than working or sleeping. And the money earned to pay rent doesn't include money needed to pay for heat, air conditioning, internet, electricity, transportation, grocery, or phone bills. Fair market rent in 2016 rages anywhere from $637 a month in Kanawha, Kanawha County, West Virginia at the low end to $1,814 a month in, you guessed it, our very own San Francisco. $1,814 a month is the average rent for a one-bedroom. The commission concluded that minimum wage should be $16.35 an hour 
to afford a one-bedroom and $20.30 an hour for the two-bedroom apartment. This is a significant increase from the 2015 numbers of $15.50 an hour and $19.35 an hour. To afford a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco at fair market rent, a tenant would have to make at least $29.40 an hour and $36.03 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment. How many people do you know who make $30 an hour? $36 an hour, actually, is what's needed. And then there's a map where it shows the number of hours that a person would have to work to afford a one-bedroom apartment. California, 89 hours. 89 hours to afford a one-bedroom apartment. Colorado is high. Illinois, Florida, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York is the highest. 101 hours a month to afford a minimum wage apartment. Nevada, 71. Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, Arkansas, West Virginia, Ohio, Michigan. Those are the low ones. Michigan, for example, comes in at 57 hours. This is what it's all about, okay? Surviving, being able to hang in there for another month debts are overloaded and your, your pay doesn't match up, what do you do? Yeah, you move in together, you organize to get higher wages. Anyway, the bread and butter of working. All right, let's see what we got. Time's uh, 11.28. Want to go out with a bang here. This day in labor history. August 3rd, 1981, the air nation's air traffic controllers went on strike in arguably the greatest disaster in the history of American organized labor. Ronald Reagan's busting of the union led to a new period of corporate anti-union attacks and served as a precursor to the current Republican-led campaign against public sector unions in Wisconsin, Ohio, and across the country. The website is This Day in Labor History, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Website. They have This Day in Labor History feature. Professional air traffic controllers PATCO were founded in 1968. Had a militant leadership and militant membership. Striking by federal employees illegal, their options for workplace actions were limited. They did, however, 
organize a couple of slowdowns, which uh, would take demanded more space between each plane. Patco had a very bad relationship with Jimmy Carter. In 1961, the union wanted an across-the-board $10,000 pay raise and fully funded retirement after 20 years. It was an audacious set of demands that would have cost taxpayers $770. The government came back with significantly less. Still a shorter work week and a 10% pay increase for a few workers. 95% of the membership rejected the deal authorized the strike. It was illegal for government workers to go out on strike. In 1955 and again in 1971, the Supreme Court ruled that government workers could be punished by a year in prison. Reagan represented an invigorated right-wing movement decided to repay PATCO for its support by destroying the union. He used the Taft-Hartley Act to force the workers back on the job, but a large majority stayed out. The strike aimed to cripple the nation's flight capacity, but through automation, quickly using scabs, flights were reduced by only about 50 cents per cent. When the union refused to go back to work, Reagan fired 11,345 workers. He did not have to do that. The law did not require the striking of the workers, and no one expected them to do that. He also banned them from government employment for life. Finally, Bill Clinton rescinded that ban in 1993, but only about 800 returned to government employment. Reagan's busting of their union had widespread implications. Reagan is to be lauded for his actions precisely because it emboldened private employers to treat their own workers as expendable, according to Alan Greenspan take a harsher stance against organized labor. And it's not like everyday Americans came out in support of the PATCO cause. In the weeks after the strike began, 45,000 people applied to become air traffic controllers. It's when there's no work. Workers are forced or feel they're forced to stab one another in the back. The FLCIO dragged its feet. Lane Kirkland explicitly told Reagan he wouldn't do anything to damage him and said 
He opposed anything that would represent punishing or inconvenience the public at large for the sins of transgression of the Reagan administration. From the perspective of air traffic, air safety and cost effectiveness, busting the union could have destroyed Reagan. Air traffic safety was severely compromised. Even Reagan's own supporters worried that plane crashes would result from his actions. It took 10 years for the government to train enough workers to restaff the air towers at the level of 1981. The cost of this was billions more than the workers demanded in 1981. Public sector unions never again took an, such an aggressive bargaining stance towards the federal government. Even today, labor has not recovered from this and still doesn't have an effective strategy for dealing with employers' uncompromising union-busting tactics. The fact that Reagan was willing to put the lives of American flyers at risk in order to score political points shows his moral monstrosity. August 3rd, 1981, learn from your mistakes. Guard your loins, go out, stand up. There's a world to win. There's something else this day in labor history. Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up. Love Canal, President Carter declares Love Canal a federal emergency. Ooh, ooh, we made a mistake. Panama Canal opens. We can do one about the Panama Canal next week about all the work. Again, we look at things all around us and they're made by the work of workers. The commodities in our stores have been scrubbed clean of the labor that went into producing. The commodities. The Acero program in 1942, a program by which Mexican workers could come and work for a limited time in the United States for growers. And it was a war time emergency measure because so many of the white workers and black workers were being drafted. So Mexican workers were needed to bring in the crops. The growers, very powerful always in, in California politics, were able to get the program extended until 1954, 1960, uh, to serve their needs. That is, provide cheap labor when and where it was needed, and then just to cut them loose. death of the Grisetto program in 1964 served as a signal to 
César Chávez and Dolores Huerta. And now they could begin unionizing Mexican workers. We celebrate today Buenaventura Durruti. 1936, after the liberation of Aragon from Franco's forces, leading Spanish anarchist Buenaventura de Ruti was interviewed by Pierre Van Basen of the Toronto Star. For us, said de Ruti, is a matter of crushing fashion once and for all. Yes, in spite of the government. No government in the world fights fascism to the death. When the bourgeoisie sees power slipping from its grasp, it had recourse to fascism to maintain itself. The little liberal government of Spain could have rendered, rendered the fascist elements powerless long ago. Instead, it compromised and dallied. Even at this moment, there are men in this government always had to live in slums and holes in the wall. We know how to accommodate ourselves for a time. For you, you must not forget, we can also build. It is we workers who built these palaces and cities here in Spain and in America and everywhere. We, the workers, can build others to take their place. And better ones, we're not in the least afraid of ruins going to inherit the earth. There's not the slightest doubt about that. Bourgeoisie must blast and ruin its own world before it leaves the stage of history. We carry a new world here in our hearts. That world is growing this minute. Buenaventura Bienvenuti of the great leaders of the anarchist cause, cause of democracy in Spain. Now here's some American poetry. This is the redoubtable Tuli Kupfenberg uh, reciting a poem by an American poet named Rachel Lindsay. Factory windows are always broken. How many of you have ever seen a factory? That's very good. Uh, people say the factories are uh, factories are disappearing. I think they're just moving out of town, way out of town. That is wherever uh, wherever uh, wages are uh, 25 cents an hour. Because you know, all of the stuff that, uh, everything here was made somewhere, probably in a factory, unless God made it. And uh, um, so, uh, there have been factories in America, and Rachel Lindsay wrote this song about factories around World War One. <laughs> 
He wrote the, this poem, we set it to music. That was Tully Kupfenberg with the Factory Window song. Here's how it goes. Factory windows are always broken. Somebody's always throwing bricks. Somebody's always heaving cinders, playing ugly Yahoo tricks. Factory windows are always broken. Other windows are let alone. No one throws through the chapel window the bitter, snarling, derisive stone. Factory windows are always broken. Something or other is going wrong. Something rotten, something is rotten, I think in Denmark. End of the factory windows song. That was Tully Kupfenberg, a poem by Vachel Lindsay. Lindsay, a very well-known American poet from the early part of the 20th century firm supporter of the labor movement and working class people. One of the people supposedly who discovered Langston Hughes. The story goes that Lindsay was eating at a hotel where um, Langston Hughes worked as a busboy. And and, uh, Langston Hughes brought out some of his poems and put them on the dish, by the dish where he served Rachel Lindsay. And Lindsay read the poems and was impressed enough to sponsor Langston Hughes, kind of protege Langston Hughes. Hughes became a famous poet in his own right. Okay, let's play a little Linda Tillery here, and then it's time to get out of here. This is Labor and Love, your Saturday morning labor magazine, labor, opinion, commentary, interviews, labor history, all by for and about the working person. As always, the show is dedicated to those 150 American workers and 3,500 worldwide workers who will die today because of job-related causes. 
little bit of Linda Tillery. Don't worry about that Patco strike. All right. Don't let nobody turn you around. You might slip. You might slide. You might stumble and fall by the roadside. That's what love is for. Don't you let, let nobody drag your spirit down. Drag your spirit let down. a little taste there of Linda Tillery. Don't let nobody get your spirit down. This is The Bee. The name of the show is Labor and Love. Coming right up is Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker. Hope you stay with us. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu, and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor, and when I say labor, I mean you. Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up, and when you don't stand up, you'll get counted as standing up for sitting down. Have a good week, everybody. Call out to my family, my daughter Vita, my soulmate Sylvia, and everybody in my family. Hello out there to Malene over in Qatar. Next week we'll have that interview with Malene Alegria. Bye-bye, everybody.
Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Muni Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast got I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and communityradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion. 
at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment, 
where in both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform Radio for free minds. Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by 